Good worship. Good morning, you guys. We are in Hebrews chapter 9, and we've been looking at the fact that Jesus is greater as a high priest than Aaron. Can you hear me? Okay. And the Aaronic priesthood, by way of reviewing chapter 8, he declared to these Jewish believers that others are attempting, really trying to draw them away from Jesus, back to Judaism. They're comparing and saying Judaism has a high priest and Christianity didn't have a high priest. And the writer of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers, whoa, hold it for a minute. Don't believe that. They couldn't be more wrong because Jesus is a high priest. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we looked at. Remember the one that Abraham paid tithes to. And no doubt, the scripture says, the lesser always bless the greater. And you know, as you think about this, as you go through the book of Hebrews, these Jewish believers, they shouldn't have been surprised. The fact that Jesus was a high priest and that He was a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek because 400 years after the giving of the law of Moses and the establishing of the Aaronic priesthood, David, by the Spirit of God, in that great Messianic Psalms 110, spoke of the fact that when the Messiah would come, he will be a priest forever. I mean, it's not like Jesus threw them a curveball. It was in scripture. He said he would be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So when he comes on the scene, declares himself to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek and that he is a priest of one. Nobody else will fulfill that role because there's no need for anybody else. Nobody can walk in the Messiah's shoes that he fills the priesthood and he, he will never die. Not only should that have been, that should have shaken them. Their faith, in their faith, it should have been solid, but it ought to have helped them realize that he fits, Jesus Christ fits the description of what God said would be true of the Messiah when he came. And then in chapter 8, he further declares that they shouldn't have been surprised, that through the Messiah and through this priesthood, According to the order of Melchizedek, God would establish, and we looked at this last Sunday, a better covenant. Wouldn't you agree the new covenant is better than the old? Of course. We looked at that in chapter 8, that the old covenant based on the law of Moses would give way to a new covenant because God had prophesied that through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, he prophesied this 800 years after the giving of the law of Moses, 800 years after establishing the Aaronic priesthood through Jeremiah, he declared that the old covenant would one day give way to this new covenant. That would deal with man primarily from the inside out because the old covenant dealt with man from the outside in externally. Washing, we'll look at all that ceremonial washing and cleansing and doing all those other things. 
under the law of Moses, which dealt with the outside of man. So chapter 9, verse 1 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances, regulations of divine service and earthly sanctuary, speaking of the tabernacle. You know, I was planning on putting the tabernacle up on the screen, and I usually send my notes to uh, Jordan, but I forgot, so I was all disarrayed. I didn't bring it up, but we basically know what the tabernacle looked like. It was a tent of meetings. In the Old Testament, it's called the tent of meetings. Now, why would it be called the tent of meeting? Why would they change the name from the tent of meeting to the tabernacle? If you remember, if you can recall, when Moses would speak, when God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to God, everybody would go outside of their tent and stand. And the kebab or the Shekinah glory would go over Moses' tent. And so when they built the tabernacle, they called it the tent of meetings. And then in the new covenant, as it went on, they just turned it, changed it to the tabernacle. So it really went back to the name it always was, the tent of meeting, because of Moses, when he would spend time with the Lord, the cloud of glory, the kabod once again would go over it. He says, though, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part of that tabernacle, in which was the lampstand. So the, as you go through, it was one gate, around the tabernacle, one place you would enter because there's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. You can go climb over. You can go underneath. There was one way. And so you would go through that gate. Everybody could come. Moses was worried about what if everybody of the children of Israel would come in one day? We wouldn't, wouldn't have enough room. He never had to worry about that. I think sometimes maybe one day, we might have to start pulling out chairs when people come. Well, hopefully one day, but right now we don't have to worry about that. I'm glad you're here, though, and those that are watching online. So they had one way to enter. You would pass that brazen altar where all the sacrifices was given. And then once again, there was one way, a little weaved, red, white, uh, linen cloth, and you would go into that room, and that was the holy place. That's the first, that's the first part of the tabernacle he's speaking of, in which was the lampstand that illuminated the first room. The glorious presence of God illuminated the holies of holies. But in that first room, the holy place was the table of showbread, it was also the lampstand, the menorah that they had to keep lit. Verse 3, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer. Now, that golden censer, the high priest would probably forget it was in there because they would bring that censer in and the aroma and all of the Perfume and the smoke and all would cover, hopefully he was thinking would cover that holy place because nothing was in there but the Ark of the Covenant. And believe it or not, whether it was the essence of Yahweh, 
with that brilliant gold mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant there, they were doing their best to try not to see the essence of Yahweh God. That's why they would have all of that fog and smoke and everything in there. I don't even know if they would even glance and try to see him. I kind of feel like when the priest would go into the holy place, they would go in there soberly. It wasn't much laughing and joking when they went in there to change the bread, change, make sure the, the menorah is lit, make sure the altar of incense that stood right in front of the most holy place, change those out and all those things. I don't think there was much. They were sober-minded when they went in there. They knew what stood behind the curtain. And it says, in the Ark of the Covenant overlaid all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the day of rebellion with Korah, and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these, we cannot now speak in detail. You can tell the writer of Hebrews, he, he really wants to go in into detail, but he doesn't do that. Essentially, what he's doing, he's laying out a little picture within their mind before he moves into the Old Testament tabernacle. It was shaped like a rectangle, sort of like an old-fashioned shoebox. It was 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and 15 feet high. So a lot of us, that, that really looks like a shoebox. And the first section, once again, when you come into the tabernacle, there would be out in front of you, and there would be in the opening that you would enter into only one way in once again. You wouldn't, but the priest would go in and the, into that first opening. That first section of the tabernacle was called the holy place of the sanctuary. And its dimensions were 30 foot long, 15 feet wide, and inside of it, there was the menorah once again, where the lamp was, there was the table of showbread, there was the altar of incense that sat right in front of the holies of holies. That's the priests the priest were involved in, in that first section of the tabernacle. On the other side of that curtain, the high priest would go in only once a year. You would enter past the altar of incense in front of that curtain, and on the other side of that was a perfect square cube, the holies of holies. 15 by 15 by 15. And that room was called the Holies of Holies. And inside of the Holies of Holies was one piece of furniture. That was the Ark of the Covenant. You had the two tablets of the law inside. God wrote on it with his finger. You had Aaron's rod that budded. And also, you had the manna. They saved some of that manna in a jar. And then he speaks of this golden censer once again that really wasn't a part of that room. But I imagine one of the high priests, the high priest, when he went in there, he was so blown away, he left out and forgot what he's speaking of here, that, that golden censer, because of what he was seeing and what he was looking at. 
he would bring in with him when he would enter into the holies of holies once a year. So he just puts the picture in their minds. They would have been familiar. The Jews would have been familiar with it. And then he said in verse 6, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always, and he's speaking in the sense of daily, he always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing these services. Every single day, one of the priests would go into that first section by the holy place, which is the holy place, and they would deal with the incense that would be offered, put oil in the lamps. They would periodically change the showbread, and all of this was a picture of Christ. But all the time, there's this flurry going in into the holy place. All the daily activities in that holy part of the tabernacle goes on right there. Verse 7 tells us, but in the second part, the holies of holies, the high priest went alone. He would spend all day praying, and the people would be out there all day praying for when the high priest would go into the holies of holies. I remember we had a member who uh, came and he did a diagram of the holies of holies. And I remember he said, because it was known that the high priest would tie a rope on his ankle when he would go in and minister and do all those things. And of course, he would have bells on his pomegranate. And they knew as long as the bells were ringing, he was doing okay. He was fine. But this guy said, no, they didn't have bells. And so me being curious, I went back and I dug around. I read commentary and I, and I went back to Edersheim. Edersheim is very good about Jewish things. And he said, now people will say he didn't have bells. But all the records show they had bells on those pomegranates. And that's why they would have a rope tied to their ankles because if they didn't go in there right, they, the, the high priest and the congregation spent all day long praying that every sin was covered before he would go into the holies of holies. That's what I'm telling you. And as long as those bells were ringing, they knew he was moving because if the bells stopped ringing, they would have to drag him out. Nobody, would you go in? <laughs> exactly. They had to drag him out. So it's a sober m moment because God is holy. It says, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed, notice, in ignorance. That's important. God would never have been satisfied with the high priest coming in once a year offering blood for the sins of the nation and everybody thinking, oh, I can just do whatever I want because at the end of the year, all of my sins is going to be washed away. God never wants us to wink at sin like that. Remember, matter of fact, when you would sin, you'd have to bring a lamb or a goat every time you sin to the priest. And once again, the priest didn't examine the person who was bringing the, the lamb or the goat because they knew he was a sinner, but he would look at and inspect the animal. No spot or blemish could be on that animal. Those were sins they knew about. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they're saying, oh, the sins you didn't know about, 
the sins you forgot about, the high priest is going in there to take care of all of not only your sins, but the sin of the nation. So really, he would go in twice. He would take blood in for, for himself first to make sure he was okay. And then he would go in a second time and take blood in for the sins of the nations. That's what he would do. Sins of ignorance. Because you and I know if we could say, okay, I blew it today, but it doesn't matter how much I blew it because at the end of the year, the high priest is going in. God said, no, 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 no. You need to take this serious, Victor. Every time you sin, First John says, confess your sins. Because if you're connected to Christ, if you've been born again, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And one thing I know about sin, if I sin today and don't confess, it's a little bit easier to sin tomorrow. And then before you know it, you've got a stack of sins. God says, no, you need to. Because when you sin against God, make sure you hear this, you're still a believer, but you break that fellowship with him. You break your walking with him. And if you want to walk with the Lord, you confess that sin. And Lord, the Lord will come right back and say, okay, you confess, I'll walk with you. That's why it's good to keep a short list of your sin, to stay in fellowship with him. Because remember, when you commit sin, you would offer once again that animal to the Lord. But the sins of ignorance... He took care of it at the end of the year. Verse 8 tells us, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet, not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Verse 9, it was symbolic. And I love that word symbolic because if you look at the Greek word, what that means, parabole. We get the word parable. So this tabernacle is speaking to every Jew that looks at it, and especially the ones who are officiating and, and, and are working in and out. It's speaking a parable to us. What is it saying? A parable is an earthly story of a heavenly truth. So what's the story the tabernacle is saying, trying to communicate? The picture of this tabernacle that we are reading about through the Old Testament is telling a story. It's a story of a greater reality. But he's saying that one of the things that we are learning through this story in the Old Testament is that it's closed. God wants them to know in parabolic form that you just can't come see me. Not now anyway, it's closed. The picture of the tabernacle, this parable is saying that the way to God is closed. You can't go there. Don't go there. Try going through the holy place and run into the holies of holies. Like I said, you won't run out. You can't go in there anyway. And that's what God is speaking in parabolic form through the tabernacle. That's the message we hear over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You want to talk to God? No can do, as Hall and Oates would say. That should take some of you guys back. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't go into his presence. It was symbolic. It was a parable for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot, and he still says, even though they're doing all these things, which cannot make him perfect. 
in regard to the consciousness. We're not able to clear our conscience of the worshiper. Even when he does all of these things, there's something inside of his heart that's saying, I still don't feel right. I still, I feel like something is still, a dark cloud is still over my head, speaking of my relationship with God. And we'll talk about that a little little later. There's a frailty to me, even though I've offered this sacrifice, even on the day of Yom Kippur, it just doesn't seem right. I'm not close to the Lord. Verse 10 says, Concerned only with foods and drink, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until, and notice these were external regulations that they're doing, external value, only to be there for a time. It says the time of reformation, a new order is coming. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So the priests, they would minister in that front section of the tabernacle on a daily basis, But in the holies of holies, that could only be entered on one day of the whole year, 364 days of the year. Nobody ever went into it. And it represented the presence of God when you went in there. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God to the children of Israel. But on that one day, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest was allowed under the law to go into the holies of holies, Only the high priest could go in, and he could only go after he had offered a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people. Now he tells us what the Holy Spirit was communicating. And what he's saying is these offerings that that were being made, they could not even make the high priest perform the service in the holies of holies on the day of atonement perfect. Still couldn't make him perfect. So here's what the tabernacle is depicting. You have the holiest priest in the entire Aaronic priesthood, and he goes into the holiest place in the entirety of the law of Moses on the holiest day of all. And even putting those three things together, those three things could not only make the people of Israel or anyone else perfect before God but they couldn't even make the high priest perfect before God in terms of consciousness, what he would still be thinking. And so through the entire day of atonement ceremony, what the Holy Priest, what the Holy Spirit was communicating to the children of Israel, very different from the way that the the priest ultimately interpreted it, but through the entire day of atonement ceremony, the Holy Spirit was indicating that access to the holiest of all, that is heaven itself, is not accessible. That's the parable. That's what he's speaking. The high priest on the day of atonement, he would go into the holies of holies and everyone else and all of God's people, once again, they would stand outside and they would wait and they would wait until he stepped out. Who can go in there? There's nothing in this law that can make a single one of us good enough to go in to the holies of holies with him. The law was not able to even allow a member of the children of Israel to go into the model of heaven. Let's forget about the tabernacle in heaven. 
they couldn't even get a, a priest or anyone around to go into the holiest of holies there, which is re- the reality of the model. They couldn't even get into the model of, of it on the day of atonement, speaking of the holiness of God. And the one great truth that they were impacted with on that day is that God is too holy for any of us to approach. That's the parable. That's what the tabernacle is speaking of. On the basis of animal sacrifices and only one man, and he had to be perfect. But for now, only one man through the animal sacrifice only allows one man access into the model one day out of the year. And what it is communicated to everyone else who wasn't a high priest is this sacrifice and this priest is powerless, is powerless to bring you into the presence of God. 400 years, the parable, speaking of the tabernacle to the children of Israel, they couldn't get it. It cannot bring you into intimacy with God, cannot bring you into a relationship with God. And he says in essence in verse 9, it couldn't even make the high priest perfect. It couldn't even quiet a conscience, couldn't make anybody bold in their approach to God. I'm going to give you an example because when you speak of the conscience, I was going to use my son, Anthony, but I'm going to spare him. I'm going to use me. When I was a little boy, I told little lies here and there, but I happened to tell a big lie in school one day because I wasn't doing my homework, and the teacher was beginning to worry about why I wasn't doing my homework, and so she came and asked me, you're you're not doing your homework. Is, Is something going on with you? Is something going on at home? And me being a little bad boy said, yeah, my dad's in the hospital, and that's why I haven't been doing my homework. And so the teacher, third, fourth grade, the teacher cared so much about me, she took me out and began to talk to me. And by that time, the enemy was saying, you're too far gone. you got to sell this now. And so I continued to sell it. So she called. My mom is at work. My dad is at work. They had the numbers. They called. She called my dad. And he said, oh, he did. No, I'm fine. Okay, I'll handle it. He hasn't been doing his homework. Okay, I'll handle it when he gets home. So it was in, it was in the summertime, and every summer we would take a week off. we take two weeks off. The first week we just clean up around the house, paint the house, do all those things. Every summer we would do something. So by that time he had called my mom, and so my mom came and picked me up from school And I said, Mom, I'm in trouble. And she said, yeah, you sure are. She said, Daddy, your daddy is painting the house. The best thing I can tell you, when you get home, just start helping him. We're talking, we're speaking of the conscience. So I get home. He's on the ladder. I said, Daddy, what do you you want me to do? (laughs) And I never do that. He said, go get the paint and just start painting. I'm helping him, bringing him stuff. My dad, that night, after we had painted, he hadn't said a word. My conscience is just ringing. It wasn't right. Things not going right. I know I'm going to get a weapon. Things not going right. Maybe I'll get off. That's the conscience telling me that. So I had to probably Wednesday or Thursday night, he had to go to a deacon board meeting. So he, I, go to, I was going to bed around 9 o'clock. So I went to bed around 8 o'clock early. 
So he goes to the deacon board meeting. This is a true story. Comes back home at 10 o'clock. Mama was saying, just do what he says. You know, you'll be all right. I'm in bed. I wasn't sleeping, but I was acting like I was. He said, boy, you can get up. It's time to get a weapon. What I'm trying to tell you, my conscience all day long was saying it's not right. I, I, I told a lie. I'm in trouble. I was not satisfied until the punishment came down. And when the punishment came down, he would always say, hey, I love you, grab me and all that. That's right. That's what I do when I whipped him. Yeah, I love you. You know, I love you, all this stuff. But everything was okay. It was no frowning upon me. It was no not talking to me. Everything. And guess what my conscience did? It's over. It's okay. The debt has been paid. Well, that's what I'm telling you about these bulls and goats and lambs and all these things. They would still live, leave out even on the day of atonement, and they were still saying, yeah, but just something's not right. I don't feel like it's right. Nobody has paid that debt that I accumulated. You understand what I'm saying? That's what Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, is saying here. It couldn't reform and it couldn't change a life, these bulls and goats. And even on the Yom Kippur, it dealt with the outer. Every single one of them left exactly the same way. They came. Their conscience wasn't changed. Something was still eating at them. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel clean. Of course, there was no power to live a holy life with these bulls and goats and sheep and all these things. No supernatural will to live a different kind of life. And so the fact that these sacrifices were offered again and again and again, the Holy Spirit was saying that it was just a public confession. That's what they were doing of sorts, that this cannot make anyone perfect. It can't change a person. It can't change their consciousness of people. Cannot produce a changed life. And then he says, and it's wonderful, the first two words of verse 11, but Christ. Then came Christ. Isn't that what Mercy Me sings in songs? You remember this song? A great song. I can't do it anymore. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. He's bringing it with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Notice what he says. That is not of this creation. It reminds me of John 1, 14. The writer says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That word is tabernacle and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So he's going to talk about the superiority of Jesus as high priest here. And the first thing that he says in verse 11 is that Jesus operates as a high priest in a superior sanctuary to the high priest under the ironic order. They dealt with the model. The model was good. Praise the Lord for the model. But Jesus operates as a high priest from the superior sanctuary in heaven itself. On the basis of that alone, you would never, ever leave him to go back to the Aaronic priesthood or to the sacrifices of the law. But the writer of Hebrews isn't through talking about the superiority of, of Christ 
And so he says in verse 11, he came as high priest of the good things to come. He has to be speaking of that new covenant with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Verse 12 says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. So Jesus not only operates in a superior sanctuary, he handles a superior sacrifice as our high priest. The sacrifice that Jesus deals with and that he handles is not with the blood of goats and calves. The sacrifice that Jesus handles and he deals with is his own blood. I didn't see it, but I can see it in my mind's eye that when he said it was, it, it was finished and he said that before he died, he says it was finished. But when he had to die, in those two and a half or three days, you can, I can guarantee you, he went to heaven. That's why Ephesians says, and he led captivity captive as he went, and he put his blood on the true tabernacle in heaven. And he says, it's paid for. It's paid for. In heaven itself, he used his own blood with his own life. And so the animal sacrifices allow the Aaronic high priest to enter into the model. The tabernacle, the holies of holies, but Jesus' sacrifice provides access into the holiest place of all, into heaven itself. And his sacrifice was the only sacrifice that he ever handled. Just think about it. Jesus walked around on this earth for three, three and a half years, was all around the temple, went in many different rooms in the temple, but he never once entered the holy place. He never once entered the holies of holies. They probably, you know, because the boys were talking about one day, they were just sitting around marveling at the temple precinct and how beautiful it was and everything. Jesus comes up to my bed. He says, man, y'all haven't seen anything yet. Haven't seen anything. Man made this. My father and I made the one that's in heaven. But he never went into those places on earth because he was of the tribe of what? Judah. Could not go in. He wouldn't break any. Oh, just because I'm the son of God, I, I can go in anyway. No, he wouldn't do that. Only a Levite could do that. The only sacrifice that Jesus deals with is the forgiveness of our sins in his own life, his own sacrifice that allows us access into heaven. So he deals from a superior sanctuary. He deals with a superior sacrifice. But then notice in verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. So Jesus is both the offerer and the offering. That's what he did. He's the priest and the sacrifice. He entered the most holy place. Here it is, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Albert Einstein, and the only reason I know this because they say it all the time on the sports shows. <laughs> He said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over 
and over again, expecting different results. These guys, these high priests, these priests were getting pretty close to that. (laughs) Year in, year out, going into the sanctuary, coming out, head hanging down. I guess I'm forgiven. I guess I'm this. I guess I'm that. But they made it. It was speaking to us of the greatest high priest ever coming, doing what we could never do. The sacrifice that he deals with, Jesus Christ, in and of himself is superior in relationship to its effectiveness and to its permanence. It was only done once. That's all he had to do. But it lasts, listen, it lasts forever and ever and ever. That's why this sacrifice that Jesus offers is infinitely more powerful than the sacrifices that had to be offered day after day, year after year. His sacrifice is powerful even for eternity. Even the best sacrifice of the Old Testament was only good for a year. Then they had to do it over again, the next year, and so on and so forth. It was a testimony of that sacrifice that it's a temporary sacrifice. It does not have the power to permanently address man's sins. But what Jesus did, the religious Jews did, is they took the law of Moses, and we spoke about this in chapter 7, and they interpreted it in a way that God never intended it to. And they said, well, by doing these things that we're doing, we can earn our way into heaven. I want everyone to hear me. Those that are watching online, not so, not true. You cannot earn your way into heaven. And they completely flip-flopped it and made it mean the exact opposite of what God intended it to. And the keeping of that sacrifice was intended to say, this is not permanent, you guys. This can never provide a permanent solution to man's sin and his forgiveness. It can't be done, so keep your eyes open. That's what the tabernacle was speaking for another high priest that's going to come. But he's going to come not in the line of Levi, but through the line of Melchizedek. They should have known. And when he comes, do everything that he says, because there's only going to be one. That's why they should have known, because to leave him is always to leave the superior for the inferior. Verse 13 tells us, for if the blood, and that if, once again, it's not so, it's not true. It can't happen. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying, notice what it says, of the flesh, speaking of outer man, that's all they could do. If God accepted temporary value, of these things because he accepted it until Christ came. How much more, there it is, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirits, who offered up Christ? Who offered up Christ on the cross? Well, the eternal spirits. That's the Father, that's the Holy Spirit. And that's Jesus Christ. They all agree because the Bible tells me they're always in agreement. They're not like me and my wife. 
We disagree sometimes. <laughs> but these dudes are always in agreement. That's what he's mean, he means by this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without spot or blemish? Spot, it was inherited. Blemish was acquired. So the Holy Spirit gets it all. Whether you inherited a little spot or whether you were doing something and nicked yourself, don't worry, God covers it all. To God, cleanse your conscience. That's when the conscience is cleansed. When you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I told you that time I went in the bathroom at home and I said, Lord, I blew it. I blew it. And I was devastated that I had blown it. And the Holy Spirit spoke in a way and he said, I forgive my children's sin all around this world. And I can't handle yours that you blew it. And I never had that problem again. My God is big enough to handle my sins, past, present, and future. Spot or blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, there it is, from dead works. Sacrifice, bulls and goats and lambs, they could not do that. It cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve. Then you can serve the living God. There's a difference between dead works and serving. You know, you can, I think about all these wonderful things. I, I don't mean to step on people's toes, but I'm stepping on toes now. If you, if, you, if you think I am, I'm not. I think about just different cults. Mormons, Mormonism have did wonderful things. Building, buildings, buildings, all of those things. And God uses those down here. But the work as he does them, as they do them, my Bible tells me they're wood. I forgot the other two. <laughs> wood, hay, and stubble. They have to be because they're not in line with Christ. He, he allows them to do it, and it benefits humanity. And the believers, we use them, and there's nothing wrong with them, doctors or whatever and all those things. But there's no benefit to those guys because they have the wrong high priest. That's what it's saying here. But when you have the right high priest and when you're doing things, you're serving the living God. We don't have to walk around and say, I hope you don't do this. I hope I'm saved. I think I'm saved. And, and walk around with this sad face, I blew it today. Oh, Lord, what am I going to do? I hope I'm saved. No, 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 no. The blood of Jesus Christ obliterates all of those. You are saved. He, he wiped your sins away, present, past, and future. That's the potency of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I can get right back up and continue to walk with the Lord and never think about what I did except not to do it again. You understand what I'm saying? I can serve him because I serve a God who has vanquished my sins. And I don't have to worry about those things. They could never do that offering bulls and goats. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That's the comparison he's making here. I don't have to say I hope I'm saved because I stomped my toe and might have said a bad word and worry about it all day long. No, I don't have to worry about it all day. I said, Lord, I'll be better next time and 
Give me the grace to be better. That's what I'll say. He wants to cleanse their conscience in regards to that. Verse 15, and he says, and for this reason, he is the mediator, the umpire of the new covenant. We spoke about that last Sunday. By means of death for the redemption of the transgression. He wants us to understand this so deeply. That's why he says, by means of death for the redemption. Notice he didn't say of sins. He said of transgressions. He said, don't cross that line, and I crossed it anyway. He said, don't cross that line, and I crossed it anyway. His blood can take care of all of those sins. That's what he's saying here under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance because it's a better covenant. And so the confidence in eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. I'm going to use a will for this example. The will, it does not go into effect until the person who has the will dies. Daddy, I want this daddy before you die, and I want that daddy, and I want this daddy. <laughs> he said, man, I'm not even dead yet. I, I can't grab anything until he leaves here, right or wrong. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But then if you're the recipient, so you have an inheritor and the benefactor. And he says, verse 17, for a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. That's what he's saying. But the amazing thing about our Savior, Christ, he's both of them. He's both of them. He's the one who dies, and he's the executor of the will. He died so that the covenant would be enforced, that we could have all of these blessings. He had, to, he had to lay his life down. For that new covenant to work, somebody has to die. So he dies for that. He's the executor to make sure that we get it, all the benefits of these things that were in the will. So he's alive to make sure we get everything he has promised us. All of these blessings. We, we looked at it last Sunday. He's blessed us in heavenly places. He says all spiritual blessings belong to us. That's what Jesus says. That we would get these through his death. And then he resurrects to make sure we get them. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. There was death attached to that also, the law of Moses. He says in verse 19, for when Moses has spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, remember what he did? He took blood, Exodus 24, of calves and goats with water, with water scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. This is the Old Testament. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle 
and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's why their conscience couldn't be clear. That's why. So he's making a point about the first covenant. Even in the first covenant, there was was a death that made it official because it was through the blood of bulls and goats that all those things were sprinkled and sanctified and purged. Now he's going to go on to say about the new covenant, therefore, verse 23, it was necessary that the copies of the things in, in the heavens, the tabernacle, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. They were sacrificed with Jesus' blood. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Once I, once I, I said it again, he never went into them, which are copies of the true, but he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He can go in there and stand. He mediates for us. Every time I blow it, he says, Father, I died for him. I died for him. And God says, okay, that's good enough for me. So he's saying Christ made the second covenant effected by his death and by his blood. He wrote us in his will, so to speak, that when he died, he would leave us eternal life and forgiveness. And now that he's died, his will is covenant is effective for us. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's it. Christ's death was final. He doesn't have to die again. He died one time to put away all sin. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. This is an important verse, especially if you haven't done it. I mean, we, we hear about these near-death experiences. Oh, I saw this and I saw that, and they come back to life. Too bad. That really doesn't count. That's near-death experience. We're talking about stepping all the way into this thing, never coming back to this earth. That's what he's saying. God's, Jesus Christ's blood is good for that. Understand when you die, you cease to exist down here and on earth, but you will live on. Your spirit will live on. Your spirit is who you are anyway. Like I said, this is just a spacesuit right here. This is just what God decided to give you to, to maneuver around down here. This is not me, what you see. Who I am is what you cannot see, and that's all of us. That's the one we should be concerned with, my darling. Jesus called it my darling after he said, the, bull, the bulls of Bashan surround me. Then he says, my darling, and I believe he's speaking of his spirit. We just reside in these tents for now. When you die, your physical frame dies. You don't die. 
you continue to live, if you're listening and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ before, you continue to live. Got an example for you. When we dream at night in your room, you're, you're in a dream. There's no light in your room. But in your dream, you're seeing light. There's no monsters in your room. But maybe in your dream, you're running from someone or a monster. And your heart... And you're sweating if the dream is intense enough. And by that time, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kick Lydia to wake me up. I need to be awakened. I don't like this dream. But I'm having it. And if someone would take my blood pressure or something when I wake up from that dream, it's high, it's everything. That's, and I'm still in this body. That's the way hell, I believe, is. And you're feeling it and you're seeing it and everything is happening. The Bible says it's like falling in, in, in a dark area, and, and you're, you never cease from the fall. You don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Jesus has made a way for us not to go there. But it's real. It's real. It is appointed for men to die once. But after this is the judgment. Verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly Wait for him. Are you eagerly awaiting from him for him? That's expectantly. Lift up your head, your salvation draws nigh. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. When he comes back the second time, he's not coming back to deal with sins. He dealt with that the first time. When he comes back the second time, he's coming back as judge and as king. But he's coming for those who are expectantly looking for him. That's the return of Christ. The worship team can come up. We serve a great high priest. We live under an amazing covenant. And we need to take advantage of it. We live in the days of grace. What's keeping you? from giving your life to the Lord? What's holding you back from surrendering to this holy God who created you, who made you, who feeds you, who clothes you, who put loved ones around you to, to minister to you, to do all those things because he wants you in, your, in his kingdom. God is amazing. And he's telling these Hebrew believers, don't turn back. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what happens to you on this planet, on this earth, it's not worth turning back. It's not worth turning back. 
You have a Savior that's right there beside you going through whatever you're going through, and he's willing, and he's pleading with you. I'm here to help. I'll strengthen you. I'll give you all you need, and I'll do more than that if you give me an opportunity, if you give me a chance, because I spilt my blood for you. I died a pauper's death for you, and you're still the pearl of great price in my eye. That's the Jesus, the God-man I knows. He's altogether lovely, as Solomon would say. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this new covenant that you brought to us in your blood. You went into the heavens of heavens. The Apostle Paul says, the third heaven where you dwell, and I can see you offering it on the mercy seat. And I can see those real cherubim just cackling and and just excited about here he is, the Messiah who wipes away the sin of the world, who, who has come to this planet to give us eternal life. Eternal life. Oh, maybe you don't get what you want down here, but God's gonna give you what you need. And he's going to provide and he's going to do all those things he promised he would do. But the goal is heaven where we can kick back and worship Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. When we can have no desire to sin to even tell a white lie, all those sins that weigh us down now, we won't know how to act. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for paying a price we could never pay. And I pray for anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would draw them. No man can come to you except you draw. That you would, as you can only do, whether it's inch by inch, step by step, pull them with cords of love. You don't pull them with cords of animosity. You don't pull us with cords of uh, of frustration. You pull us with cords of love to your kingdom. I want to say thank you for that, Lord. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.